0: Hey guys, this is Christina jumping in here ahead of the show. So what you're going to be listening to here is a slightly longer version of the interview that I did with Craig Mason a couple weeks ago. This includes our talk about the incredible episode 3 of The Last of Us. If you've already listened to the earlier interview, you can jump in at about 22 minutes here to get the new part of the conversation. Enjoy! This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone! Thanks so much for joining me. I'm excited to talk about this show. That is the HBO series The Last of Us. It's already a bona fide hit. The Guardian wrote that it's one of the finest shows that you'll see this year. The Washington Post says, The Last of Us stays true to the game and hits just as hard. But most importantly, audiences and fans of the game seem more than pleased. And the same goes for me. It's really, really good. So I'm so thrilled to have creator, writer, director, and producer Craig Mason back on Pop Culture Confidential to talk about it. Last time he was on with me, it was for Chernobyl, an absolute masterpiece of a series. And he's done it again. So The Last of Us is based on the acclaimed game from 2013, created and written by Neil Druckmann, who is also the co-writer and co-creator of The Last of Us series together with Mason. The Last of Us takes place after a fungal outbreak has caused a global pandemic. Joel, played by Pedro Pascal, who lost his daughter to the outbreak 20 years earlier, has to smuggle and transport a teenager, Ellie, played by Bella Ramsey, across the country to a laboratory as she seems strangely immune to the disease and could be the key to a vaccine and ending the pandemic. The story blends monstrous mutations with powerful themes of sacrifice, love, moral conundrums, parenthood, and found family. Ever kill one? Yeah. Is it hard? Knowing they were people once? I'm taking you with me. We can just keep our histories to ourselves.
1: You don't tell anyone about your condition.
0: We're trying to keep you alive. You're not immune from being ripped apart. Frank, we will never have friends because there are no friends to be had.
1: Just because life stopped for you doesn't mean it has to stop for me
0: there's no halfway with this we finish what we started craig Mason, welcome back to my show and thank you for another incredible show now with the last of us
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm so glad you uh, you like it. I feel like this is now uh, the thing that you and I do every few years. So this is exciting.
0: <laughs> the best TV adaptation of a game ever. The critics are saying. So any fears you had of angry fans, that's out the window.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you're always worried. Um, uh, we obviously make television for an audience. We want the audience to appreciate it. We want them to find it, and we want them to hopefully, you know, understand it uh, the way we do. So it seems like it's connected the way we were hoping.
0: I heard you announce that you were working on the last of us on your screenwriting podcast, script notes. I think it was March, February, something, 2020. You said that playing the game made you feel things. I was wondering what those things were.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, in a good way, it was hard to qualify what they were. Um, I, I felt, obviously, I felt sorrow and grief and shock when Sarah died. But as you go forward and you play, I was starting to feel this, it's almost like this uh, bittersweet um, need for Joel and Ellie to, to stay together and to help each other. But the bittersweet part was that, I, you know, you were worried that, there was always something terrible around the corner and where it all ended up was way more ambiguous than I expected. And that's an interesting feeling. It's more of a challenge to our sense of what is a happy ending. And it's truer, I think, to, to life because I mean, the happiest endings still end in death, which, you know, obviously for, for Swedes, this is no big deal, but for the rest of us, we really struggle with this. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, We're going to get into some of the more philosophical things, but I want to ask you, an unexpected thing happened then when you were writing, unexpected for us all. We all became experts, doctors, this pandemic that we were suddenly in. Did you learn anything and like, oh shit, this is how we react?
1: Well, obviously we all did. I mean, we all became junior epidemiologists. (laughs) We all learned so much about even the surprises like I... I don't think anybody expected that toilet paper would be the, the most important commodity uh, as, you know, people started to buy things and, and and remove them from shelves. So we did learn. But what was interesting about The Last of Us is that the pandemic has essentially concluded and the fungus won. So it isn't so much, there wasn't anything that was really particularly applicable because we were going through a process that we all felt like, look, we're gonna make it through this. We're gonna come out on the other end. Um, but um, in The Last of Us, we didn't make it through. Uh, it's, it, um, it's over. So what we did, definitely did wanna do uh, though is right off the bat acknowledge that we're aware that a pandemic happened. We, we understand the seriousness of viral pandemics and what we're suggesting is there is something much worse it was important for us to acknowledge to the audience that we weren't ignorant of the fact that we all just went through this.
0: The history of TV adaptations of games has been a rough road. I mean, you basically have two audiences, the ones that know the game, have played the game and love it, and the ones that don't. So when you and Neil Druckmann, the creator and writer of the game, were starting out, what things did you know would not translate?
1: Well, you never know for sure, but as you go along, you begin to get better and better at guessing and predicting. Uh, but I think philosophically from the start, we understood that gameplay is not necessarily translatable to television, that the adaptation process needs to account for the fact that we are a passive experience. We are sitting back and we are watching and we, uh, we understand what that is as an audience member we have been watching our whole lives and those of us who play games we've been playing games our whole lives it's the gameplay aspect is the difference what made the last of us so worthy of adaptation was that there was so much to it that was translatable that that we could carry through to television Because, you know, I I always tell Neil, like, when I played it, I could see there was like a show dying to get out, you know? It was like it was in there. One of the things that Naughty Dog, um, the company that makes The Last of Us, one of the things that they're really good at is including story in gameplay. So it's not like we said, oh, you know, if there's gameplay, we just ignore it. But we pull those moments out. And then when we do show action... Um, violence, we do so with, I think, a lot more specificity because we're not putting people in gameplay loops where, in a sense, repetition is part of the enjoyment. But rather, we are making dramatic statements where something happens that both moves the story forward and also changes the key characters and their relationships.
0: Neil is just was so cinematic with the game to begin with. must have been amazing for when you guys started. Oh yeah.
1: It's it's a huge help. I mean, his Neil does think about things cinematically. Um, No country for old men was another touchstone for him. As he was making the last of us. Um, He even in, in the creation of the cutscenes, for instance, you know, from the game where you stop playing and you just watch. uh, Naughty Dog is really smart about not putting the camera in weird places, but rather making it feel verite and filmed. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think also specific to The Last of Us, the fact that the heroes are humans with no supernatural abilities whatsoever is a big part of why it is very adaptable. Um, th- not to say that people don't enjoy the supernatural. They do. We watch Marvel movies all the time, but movies and particularly spectacle films, I think, are great showcases for that sort of uh, mythological storytelling. I think mean, you know, superhero movies to me are just modern, you know, gods and monsters. Um, but when you're adapting a video game into this long form uh, of eight or nine or 10 episodes of a season, the fact that the heroes are grounded in human uh, is, is a huge, I think it's a huge benefit. It makes everything feel a bit more accessible and real.
0: Oh, yeah. And all the moral conundrums and everything just become so real. One thing I didn't know that I learned from your show as well, that you had a philosophy on violence in your show, Runner Notes. Yes. What was that philosophy? Well,
1: in gameplay, violence is your primary mode of getting through obstacles. Part of gameplay is to set up, you know, they call them loops, you know, you're in a stage, I have to get from here to here. But in between where I am and where I need to go or what I need to get, there are bad guys, whether they are humans or they're infected NPCs, non-player characters. And part of your job is to get through them and your primary method of getting through them is to kill them. And that is fun in a video game. When you're watching television. Uh, if we were to make violence the primary mode of getting through things, we would be piling up bodies left and right, at which point the tone changes quite dramatically to something that feels a little bit broader than what we wanted to do. So our feeling was acts of violence that you you yourself do not press a button to commit, but rather we force you to watch on our terms um, are going to be, I think they deserve more attention and care. And when violence happens, we wanted it to be as impactful as we could make it. Um, So there is violence. When it occurs, we try our best to show that the violence is permanent, meaning unlike a game where we must have a healing mechanism or we're not gonna be able to play more than 10 minutes, there's no healing here in any easy way. If you get shot, you're either going to die or you are gonna suffer for a long time if you punch somebody in the face you're going to break your hand and your hand isn't going to heal between episodes we try as best we can to show the impact of violence on the body because um so much of what we're dealing with in this world is is survival and anger and fear and when that stuff is manifested in violence we want to show how that impacts somebody's life in a permanent and serious way.
0: Besides yourself and Neil, you have some incredible directors on here Ali Abasi, who's done Holy Spider, Jasmine Nazbanik, an incredible Bosnian film director who yes. did one of my favorites, Scovadi Saida. Did you have a particular sensibility that you were looking for when you were choosing directors?
1: Yeah, I could probably sum it up in two words Johan Renk. <laughs> 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 You know, I had such an incredible experience with Johan doing, um, doing Chernobyl, and Johan was originally. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I have say, it. yeah, you won. I have to do like his name properly. You won. Uh, is that close? You yes, yes. How you mean, won. You won. You won. You won. Um, that he was. So he was gonna do it, and then uh, so, like you pointed out, a little bit after Neil and I started working on it the pandemic occurred everybody's projects got shifted back he had a, a feature that he was going to make that got shifted and so we he just wasn't available and so then the question was like okay well let's look around and see who else is out there um and let's be quirky about it let's be interesting let's not shy away from um independent filmmakers and people who are coming from wildly different points of view and perspectives and, and lands. So we had American directors, an Israeli director, uh, a Persian, Swedish, Danish director, <laughs> a Bosnian director, um, Brits. And, and that's how we kind of put this all together. It is really interesting. For instance, Yasmina Lisbonic, you know, she grew up, in the middle of a civil war in Sarajevo. She understood what it meant to be living in a war-torn city where tribalism had had turned into this horrible violence. And so when I talked to her, I was like, look, there's this episode where I think, you know, we're going to be in a war-torn city and and who else, who would be better than you? And she's like, I don't want to do that. (laughs) I want to do an episode. I want to do the episode where they get somewhere that isn't war torn, but actually is functioning. She was so invested in the notion that out of war and tragedy could come a functioning, healthy society and, and particularly a functioning, healthy society that had, because the world ended, had a chance to break the cycle of patriarchy. Uh, and that was really interesting to all of us. And so I was like, okay, You got it. That's yours. (laughs) You're doing that one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's so many incredibly interesting moral discussions going on in this show and this story. I mean, individuality versus the collective survival instincts that have a cost to your humanity. I would say, Um, did you guys have big discussions in the writer's rooms and with these directors? And yeah, I
1: think, you know, Neil and I would, would talk a lot about this stuff i mean there are certain things that we you know were just so evident from the game and we could discuss and maybe elucidate a little more clearly between ourselves and then for the audience, because we have more time, more story time, essentially. Um, but the, the, I think the biggest discussions we would have would circle around the nature of love and how you, we cannot survive without it. And it is kind of what makes life worth living, but also is the thing that leads to some of our most dangerous impulses, some of our most tribalistic um, and defensive impulses and how our strong, the, the the most powerful bond, I think, of love is between a parent and a child, really from parent to child, not the other way around. And the moral question, how many, of your children's lives are worth one of my children's lives. We just can't help but organize the world in this fashion. It's just my kid means more than yours. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? And what does that lead us to? And so just questions turning on the nature of love, both positive and negative, that was the big philosophical discussion that I was really interested in having and pulling out through the story um, as we went along.
0: And did you come to any personal conclusions?
1: Yes. It's, 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 it's sort of an ambiguous one, a little bit like the conclusion I came to at the end of Chernobyl, which was that lying is really bad and I don't know how we are able to get through lives without it. (laughs) Um, And that is um, that uh, we are not capable of, being perfectly moral creatures. We are inherently immoral because we are controlled still by this very basic um, animal instinct to love to the exclusion of everything else. And we, all we can do I think is just be aware of it and try and make sure that where our love starts to turn to fear and therefore Anger and violence and xenophobia and racism and protectionism that we try to fight that instinct as best we can with the understanding that we are still, after all, only human.
0: I find it comforting that so many people playing this game to begin with and seeing are actually thinking about these things.
1: Yeah. When we get to the end, there's going to be quite a discussion. There's no there question is, about
0: that. There is. And I want to talk about the opening before we get to the end, which is absolutely genius, um, which is oh, something that yeah. wasn't in the game that I'm certain comes from you. It's it's um, John Hanna. Is, a group of scientists in the sixties and a, what you describe as perfectly as a Dick Cavett type of scenario. And they're yeah. just smoking in their brown <laughs> corduroys and uh, talking about how this is going to come and uh, this fungus is not going to be a cure and we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Why did you decide to do this opening?
1: Well, I originally wrote it w- before I think I wrote anything else way, way back at the beginning, I wrote it, um, And I sent it to Yohan and I said, hey, I found this on the internet. It's a transcript from an old Dick Cavett from 1968.
0: Oh, it actually was Dick Cavett. I mean, the inspiration.
1: Oh, Dick Cavett was definitely the inspiration, no question. I'm obsessed with those old Dick Cavett interviews because, you know, there was a time when talk shows were so literate and intellectual. I mean, you had these incredible people on. Um, and they would have these remarkably elevated conversations. Um, and so I, 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 I wrote it. I it wasn't real, but I wrote it and sent it to you on as if it were. And I said, look what I found. And he was like, holy shit. I can't believe it. <laughs> I was like, ah, I gotcha. <laughs> um, it was, I, I, showed it to Neil and he was like, well, this is really interesting, but maybe the way to start is to just show this video. There was a documentary. Um, uh, I think it's planet earth where they show how cordyceps functions. And so we were thinking, Oh, we'll make our own. And that's how we'll start. And uh, you know, just, it it wasn't great. And so I don't know, it was maybe like three or four weeks before we were going to finish shooting. I said to Neil, I'm going to pull this back out of my drawer here and I'm going to put it in proper scene format. What do you think? And he goes, yeah, it's actually pretty good. Let's do this. So (laughs) We uh, we shot that. It was pretty close to the end. I think it was in our last week uh, of shooting. Um, and yeah, we brought in John Hanna and Josh Brenner, who's so good at just everything. And um, I got to tell you, I am stunned at the reception that scene has gotten. I thought, honestly, that people were going to be like, Oh, it's boring <laughs> and uh, and in fact, what what we keep hearing over and over are people saying that's the scariest moment in the, in the first it episode, is. Which is something else. I mean, it's I I I don't mind. Uh, I guess I should stick to writing scientists from the 60s, 70s and 80s. So far, so good.
0: It's decades apart, of course, but there is sort of a Chernobyl esque feeling. But I also kept thinking that the cigarette smoking corduroy experts were not listening to them. Maybe next time the Kardashians or something should tell us about
1: the government. We might get, yes, prettier people will help us understand everything. Um, I, I did like the, one of the things I liked about that opening, A, acknowledging, hey, we are aware that there was a pandemic, everybody at home, was also to suggest that when this disaster occurs and everything falls apart, it doesn't happen suddenly. It happens finally. That there's like, it's just, it's, that somebody said in 1968, this is going to happen. And by the time we get to 2003, it's not, we understand this isn't just a, oh, it just happened to happen today. People have been talking about this forever. And that's, you know, unfortunately how it works with us. We know things are coming. We know the earthquakes are coming. We know that the, the there's a rise in, sea level. And we know that there's going to be more extreme climate and tsunamis. And as long as it's not happening today, we just seem to be fine.
0: We just in here, out the other. So I want to talk about a specific episode, which, oh God, you made me cry. Um, you talked about that love is not always a good thing. or And still you have written in episode three, one of the most beautiful, love episodes love stories I've ever said I mean if I can say to my partner after decades of being together I'm satisfied I mean it makes me cry just thinking about it so (laughs) I want to talk to you about this Bill and Frank episode and these are uh, characters that met slightly in the game can sort of sense that they've had a long relationship together but spending decades with them was not something we got to do in the game
1: yeah in fact in the in the game you never even really meet frank he's he's uh he's dead um you only talk with bill and bill's relationship with frank was unsuccessful um and part of what neil was doing there was showing to the player here's what happens if Joel keeps going on the path he's going. You close yourself off to everybody to the extent that you are completely alone and suffering from this paranoia, um, you, you, you've achieved not only physical safety, but emotional safety, but at the cost of living itself. Um, and for me, I thought, you know, we have an opportunity to do something wildly different. The first two episodes are a lot. There's there's action and there's tragedy and there's s- scares and and I thought, well, A, I think people are going to need a little bit of a, a breath. And B, I want to be able to show what the passage of time was like between outbreak day and now. But I only want to view it through the lens of an interesting individual and an interesting relationship because that's the only way I'm interested in viewing anything. And then and then I thought, you know, there's the the thing about Bill, it's I loved playing that section in the game, but it was very much about gameplay. It was very mission-based. And Bill was a fun side character, and then he's gone. But you have to be with Joel and his perspective because that's who you're controlling. And we don't have that restriction. We can be with anybody. So I just started noodling about this notion of this romance. And the more I thought about it, the more it became kind of the philosophical codex for the whole show. And that is there are two very different ways of loving. There is this outward nurturing love that creates beauty and cares for others. And then there's the love that is protective and protective at all costs. Uh, And they need each other. I don't think Frank is going to survive unless he runs into Bill and Bill is not going to truly live unless he runs into Frank. They need each other. And as they evolve, you can see Bill changing. Um, But when it's over, first of all, they've succeeded in a grim world where no one is succeeding they they win. It doesn't matter that the way it ends is with the two of them finishing their lives. They do it on their own terms, and people get old and they get sick and then they die, and that's not just some people that's all of us, all of us. So we can't we can't exclude you died from success (laughs) because we all do so there is a way to win and they won and yet still you can see how bill's legacy and what he passes along to joel is we those of us who are the protectors will must and will do whatever it takes to keep the people we love alive that's what we do and that is what joel believes is his role as well. His He failed with his own daughter. He failed with Tess. And now he's going to hopefully succeed with Ellie. And the question is, can Joel and Ellie end up as successful in their lives, even though it's obviously a very different kind of love, it's platonic and it's paternal, can they succeed to the extent that Bill and Frank did? Or is there something about the two of them that is going to lead to Something that is not as successful, perhaps darker and upsetting.
0: To find someone in the middle of chaos or just in life in general that gives you purpose like this also just makes this such a beautiful love story. And it doesn't matter when or how it happens. That's right. Did Did you have a backstory for Bill, like why he's such a good cook, that type of thing? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, well, I... Uh, there's uh, there's uh, I've got some Bill. I've got some Frank on both of those guys. Um, I love when you see people both fitting perfectly into the stereotype you would imagine and then wildly different. Our natures can't help but get out Bill as paranoid and conservative and um, violent as he is. Um, there is also something in him that appreciates beauty. He appreciates beauty and quality. Um, and Frank is somebody that creates beauty and quality. Um, and so even with Bill's cooking, he's cooking for himself. That isn't that isn't an outward love. That is an inward love. <laughs> the fact that he then has to cook for another person, he hasn't cooked for another person, probably, ever, ever. But there's this thing that happens when this man emerges from the pit and he's looking at him. We can't help but fall in love. It is our nature. Uh, It is our nature, no matter how much we hide. uh, It's going to find you, which I think is so wonderful. And so much of what I poured into the writing of that episode was my experience being somebody who's, been in a committed relationship with one person for 27 years now. Um, There is, you know, people think of love as that exciting heartbeat, dopamine rush thing. That's, it goes away. (laughs) I mean, anybody that thinks that you're going to feel that way every day, you'd go out of your mind and be insane. Then something else happens. It's this older thing. It's this different thing.
0: It's and a beautiful think, thing as you portray it. I think it's
1: a beautiful thing. I think we underestimate. yes. I think we, I think we discount it. I think we giggle about it. It's where the real love is. I think real love is the product of time. I think I think infatuation is is exciting, but real love is the product of time and commitment. And mm-hmm. that's what I wanted to portray with these two guys.
0: And also for us, the, the viewers to see, you know, survival, as not just surviving, but having this beautiful outcome, we kind of needed that. But also, Nick Offerman and Murray Bartlett. Oh my God, this casting! Yeah. I mean, just <laughs> the way they look at each other. And uh, when did this casting happen? And talk a little bit about casting in general. Sure, terrific in this show.
1: Thank you. I mean, so casting is essential. Uh, I, I think that. I'm always looking for a way to have the wind at my back when I'm making these things. And the way that you get the wind at your back most effectively is by casting the right people because they're already, just by being who they are, they're making it work. And then what they put into it and the way that we help each other elevates it. But to start with, you've got the right people. Um, So Murray... We cast Murray before uh, I before White Lotus came out, so I hadn't seen it. And Murray actually auditioned; he put himself on tape, which I'm, I'm fairly certain he is no longer going to be doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I just—he made me cry. He made me cry just um, doing the audition, and I just thought he's—he's he's perfect. I, I, I wanted Frank to be really handsome. I wanted Frank to have this inner light and um, and it's all there uh, in Murray. And then after we cast him, I saw White Lotus and I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, did we, we won. Um, the best part is he's so nice. He's so humble and sweet and committed and professional. It's just a dream. He's an absolute fucking dream. Ah, so it's like, oh, that's amazing. And then with Nick, you know, originally we were talking to Con O'Neill, who I worked with on Chernobyl. Um, and then Khan was um, working on uh, our flag means death, which is a show on HBO max. And so the, the schedules didn't line up. And that's when Carolyn Strauss, my uh, partner in crime over here recommended Nick. And I was like, of course. And we had, you know, primarily we had said, like, look, we, we want to find two actors who are both gay men that are middle-aged. And and as much as possible, I tried to surround myself with middle-aged married gay men as we made this. You know, so our Peter Hoare, our brilliant director, is a middle-aged married gay man, and Murray Bartlett is a middle-aged married gay man, and uh, one of our producers, Cecil O'Connor, is a middle-aged married gay man, and our editor, Tim Good, is a middle-aged married gay man. So I'm like, okay, this feels like we've got a good family here and I I'm not gonna be able to take a false step. They we have got so many good eyes on this. But when we couldn't get Khan, we were sort of like, okay, let's widen it out. And I and everybody around me were they were like, don't, it's okay if you hire a straight guy here. It's it's about getting the right guy. And everybody was so excited about Nick. And I think it's because re- Nick and I talked quite a bit about it. And he was a little nervous about portraying a gay man, particularly in a time when we're all trying our best to, you know, connect representation to the characters that people play. And I think Peter Hoare was really great about just saying, uh, shut the fuck up. You got this. You're going to be just fine. (laughs) I will not let you down. Don't worry. And I think Nick's sort of inherent nerves and jangliness and His and the novelty of it, the newness of uh, that relationship to him helped. You could feel how scared he was in a way. Not that Nick, the actor, was scared of being with Murray, the actor, but rather just there was this like, scared isn't the right word. Uh, New. How new? Apprehensive and new and, and worried. I think he, more than anything Nick was worried that he wasn't going to be a good kisser and that he wasn't going to be he was going to he was going to do something wrong and which is exactly what Bill would be thinking because Bill is essentially a virgin and so there was something beautiful about the virginity aspect of it and then the thing that you can never prepare for you just hope is chemistry and Nick and Murray had such gorgeous chemistry and the way that Murray just sort of helped Nick and the way Nick helped Murray and the two of them just what else can you say i mean i could watch those two guys i i, I could do an entire other show just that, like a sitcom even yeah. <laughs> just their
0: Please, i'd be there yeah. we we'll yeah. only have a few minutes i just have to ask you so are you all set for the last of us too
1: oh boy wouldn't that be nice if all those <laughs> scripts were written and i just had to show up um we we started talking about it um and uh, it's it's a much more complicated narrative. it's a longer story so that's not a story that we think we could achieve in one season that's that the way we were able to do the first game in one season, I think comfortably but the the last of us part two is much more sprawling and complicated and difficult narrative so figuring out how to translate that and adapt that is something we're talking about right now um i don't I'm never set i'm never i'm never <laughs> I never feel like I've achieved anything until it's finally over and it's out and people are watching it. So it'll be a while before. And then we'll you know what? We'll be right back. You and I will be right back talking about it. And hopefully you'll
0: Why can't Um, Do you have you figured out lastly who would survive and who wouldn't in a situation like this?
1: You mean, like, in general, in my life?
0: Ted Cruz would, I know, your epic (laughs) battles. If the
1: world starts to fall apart, people are going to probably kill Ted just because it's like, "Eh, we can probably get away with it right now. The whole world's falling apart. Uh, uh, He's the worst. Um, I I know, personally, if the world starts to fall apart like that and there's a uh, a, a fungal pandemic that's making people, you know, bite each other, uh, I will be dead within minutes. Uh, I am not, you yeah, know, we're, uh, listen, I don't even know if I'll have time to write a note. Uh, <laughs> I, may, I may die just like going down the stairs. I might just trip and fall and that'll be that. I, It's, I'm not a survivor. I'm I'm a writer.
0: <laughs> so, I'll just die from the, being frightened about what's going to happen. Basically, yeah, <laughs> I would
1: just be like, oh. um, I'm much better at, at telling stories than I'm about surviving, I think.
0: Well, hopefully, if we can survive with a love story like the one you've written, then then I'll, then I'll be happy to stay around for a while. That would Frank, be nice. I'm satisfied. Oh, thank you.
1: It's it's so great seeing you again, Christina. It's so lovely talking to you. And thank you. I am so glad you're enjoying the show.
0: I am, and good luck. I can't wait for everyone to see the rest of it. And um, thank you so much for taking your time with me. Thank you so much for listening. Pop Culture Confidential is a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Find us wherever you find your podcasts. See you next time. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you.